So what does it mean to take a leap in the dark? Well, it doesn't mean that you should wake up a couple of hours earlier on February 29th. February 29th, if you see that on your calendar, that means that we're in a leap year. Every four years that comes along, and all it kind of basically means is that another day gets added to the year, and and that day just happens to be on February 29th, which normally has 28 days. So if your birthday happens to be on February 29th, I really hope that your family is kind to you and they give you cake and ice cream on the 28th and don't make you wait every four years for presents. So I hope that they're that kind to you. There's a doctor that was talking to one of his patients one time and he said, I've got great news for you, Bob. He said, you have the body of a 22-year-old man as long as your birthday is on February 29th. You have the body of a 22-year-old man. One of those after-lunch jokes. It'll come. A leap in the dark and a leap year are not really connected. It's different kinds of leaps. The dictionaries of the Oxford University Press define leap in the dark this way. A leap in the dark is a daring step or enterprise whose consequences are unpredictable. Oxford University Press, the the writers of that definition, they were founded more than 400 years ago, and they still are headquartered in the same place that they are founded the United Kingdom. Well, the United Kingdom's been in the news a little bit this week, partly because of this vote from the people of the United Kingdom to actually leave the European Union. Not more than 10 articles or headlines that I saw this week described a leap in the dark as what this vote was really about. And the articles went on to describe that the idea is that the people were so upset with the current system many of them, that that they voted and this vote went forward and it's kind of a a leap in the dark because, as Oxford University Press defines a leap in the dark, it is a daring step into unpredictable consequences. So there's lots of opinions on either side of this issue and there's lots of ideas on either side of this issue, but the truth of the matter is we we don't really know how it's going to impact the United Kingdom, how it's going to impact Europe, how it's going to impact the United States or the rest of the world. We're just not sure. I did read this morning something interesting that someone said that if you vacation in London, it will probably be a little cheaper, but getting there will probably be more expensive. So being there might be a little cheaper, but flying there would take a lot more dollars to get there. We don't really know what's going to happen, though. So in a sense, we don't know the end results of what some are calling a leap in the dark for the United Kingdom. Now, some people use this same phrase to describe religion. Author and scientist Sam Harris writes, Given that faith is generally nothing more than the permission religious people give one another to believe things strongly without evidence, a conflict between science and religion is unavoidable. Believing strongly in things without evidence, that's what many people think about Christianity. They think that it's somewhat foolish to to believe something with no evidence, to to look past the the evidence of science or reason or philosophy, and to believe in the the narrative and the principles and the truth of a book that was written almost 2,000 years ago. In other words, many people would look at Christianity and say that it is a foolish leap in the dark, that we're believing in something that we have no evidence behind. But is it really a leap in the dark? I mean, is that, is that really what we're doing here this morning? 
Are we just here today to, to kind of give each other permission to go be fools again this week? I mean, is that the, the gear of what we're at? I mean, do we just come together to kind of play on each other's emotions with, with some sentimental songs that might make us stomp our foot and clap our hands? Or to, to listen to enthusiastic preaching and again just kind of, kind of play on emotions and give each other permission to just go be fools again this week. Be foolish and believe in something that's not real. Well, what if I were to tell you that not only is Christianity not a leap in the dark, but rather, Christianity and the very definition of what it means to be saved in Jesus Christ pokes a strategic hole in the dark. And the darkness and the pain and the misery of sin begins to leak out or even rush out of your soul. That's how the Bible describes following Jesus. And Jesus has something to say about it too. Listen to Luke chapter 11, verse 33. Jesus says, no one after lighting a lamp puts it away in a cellar nor under a basket, but on the lampstand, so that those who enter may see the light. Imagine that you're an eight-year-old child, and you live in downtown Charleston, South Carolina, and it's the spring of 1780. Now, your family doesn't live in one of the big fancy houses down near the water. You're a little farther away, back on another street, but, but it's not a shack. It's, it's a decent house. And you've been listening for, for almost a month now to your mom and your sister whispering in the living room. After you go to bed, you can hear them whispering. There's, there's rumors that the British troops were coming to take over Charleston. And then Friday night comes along. And your mom puts you to bed a little earlier than normal on Friday. So you know something's off. And there's a, a look on her face that you can't quite understand. You, you see some worry there. And as she tucks you in, you know something's not right. And there's no way you're going to be able to sleep. I mean, that look on your mom's face has left you uneasy. You're, you're feeling maybe just a little bit afraid. And just as the sun goes down... Your mom lights her, her little candle on her little tin holder and she sets that candle down on the table in the middle of the living room. And that one little candle seems to blow all this light into the little crack of your door so that your whole room seems to light up from that one little candle. And then suddenly through that little crack you see your sister take a big, huge, gigantic sweetgrass basket and cover the candle up. And your room goes dark again. You're not sure why she did this. You don't know if maybe she was thinking the light was keeping you from sleeping. You don't know if your mom heard something outside and, and kind of gave her a nod and, and she covered up. You don't know why the light is gone, but the light is gone and you're starting to get a little bit afraid. In that moment of uneasy darkness, you have no idea that the next morning, Saturday, April 1st, was not going to be April Fool's Day and that all those rumors about the British troops were real. And they really did come and take over the city of Charleston. Now, that scenario with that little candle is not dramatically different from what an eight-year-old might experience in the time of Jesus. You see, a, a candle during that time set in the right place in the house would literally bring light to the whole house. In every little corner, the light would sneak in with a calming glow. And so it would make absolutely no sense once you lit that lamp or lit that candle to, to cover it up so that it couldn't be seen. It would make no sense to, to take that lamp down in the cellar and put it on a table in the cellar and then, and then go back upstairs. 
First of all, you'd probably trip going back up the stairs because you have no light. And then when you got back upstairs where you're actually doing things, there is no light. So the one lamp provides the light. So you wouldn't cover it up and you wouldn't go bury it in the basement. I mean, this is kind of common sense, right? I mean, Jesus is kind of talking about something that all of us kind of would understand. So why in the world is he talking about something that would make so much common sense? Well, here's why. The crowds were growing. More and more when Jesus went places, more people were, were starting to crowd around. They, they wanted to hear him. There was all kind of people in the crowd, too. Some of the people that came, they, they genuinely were interested in what he said about the kingdom of God. They, they genuinely heard his message. They responded to Jesus. They began to follow after him. There were some other folks that thought it was really interesting, but, but they went to it kind of like a concert tour. You know, They just wanted to go get a t-shirt and say they went. They, they were interested in the new guy who was coming around. There were other people that came in the crowd, and they hated Jesus. In their hearts, they were huffing and puffing. Or in their minds, they were huffing and puffing. Or sometimes they were huffing and puffing out loud. And they were saying, this, this guy's not the Messiah. There, there's no reason anybody should be following him. And, and then there's this other group. They don't hate Jesus, but they don't believe in Jesus. And they're a little more than the t-shirt people. They, they're interested but they're not convinced, and they're always asking Jesus for a little bit more. They see Jesus do a big miracle, and they say, Jesus, that was, that was neat. That was good. But can you do another one? And maybe this time, can you do it with your eyes closed? Maybe with your hands tied behind your back? Or better yet, tell you what, we'll come up with a miracle. We'll, we'll come up with some kind of outrageous miracle. You know, we'll, we'll wish for the Nile. You know, we'll ask you to make the Nile River just appear right here in front of us. That's what we'll do. And if you do that, Jesus will believe you. We'll, we'll follow after you. And so there's this crowd of people. All of them can get something out of the message of Jesus. But it seems that that one group, it seems that what he's saying here might land a little more on them. That they might hear and know what he's communicating. And what is he communicating? Well, on another day, Jesus said the exact same thing with a little bit different language. John chapter 8, verse 12. I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. You see, Jesus, if we look at his life and this time and his ministry, he was not an entertainer. He was not trying to impress people with his creative performances. Jesus was not a motivational speaker. He was not trying to help people get on the path to success with seven steps or, or 12 steps or, or an emotional walk across hot coals. Jesus was not just some fancy-suited preacher or some skinny-jeaned preacher who had a great advanced team who would go out and, and put together these well-scripted worship services that would amaze people with their coolness and their uniqueness. That's not who Jesus was. Jesus was simply going from village to village. He was going from person to person. He was going from synagogue to synagogue. And he was bringing light to a dark world. And don't miss that part. He wasn't just bringing, but he was being. He wasn't just bringing light. He was being light in a dark world. See, Jesus doesn't just have a nice candle and a nice lamp. He is. His very nature is light. He was and he is the light of the world. So what Jesus is doing 
is he's looking at the crowd and he's saying, I'm the sign that you need. I'm the only thing you need to look at. There's nowhere else you need to turn. See, I'm not hiding under a basket. And I'm not hiding down in the cellar, the cellar of the church. I'm not, I'm not hiding in the basement. I'm right here. You can see me. I'm not giving you secret codes to figure out. I'm not using strobe lights or disco balls to amaze you. I'm just standing here being the light because that's what I am. John MacArthur said that the problem was not a question of light. It was a question of sight. See, Jesus was standing right there, but, but they didn't see him. See, the prince of, of all peace was talking to them. The king of kings was, was standing next to them. The light of the world was walking with them, but they didn't see him. They were looking for more. So what does it mean that Jesus is the light of the world? Well, it's kind of a big phrase, right? The light of the whole world. So if he's the light of the whole world, it stands to reason that would make him the exclusive light of the world. That there is no other light that has the power, that has the longevity, that has the the saturation of the light of Jesus Christ. There is no power company that can reproduce this kind of light. His light has no measure. And nothing can measure up to it. And there's no person in any nation anywhere that doesn't need this light because Jesus is the light of the world. You cannot escape his power. You cannot ignore his power. You cannot match his power. And if Jesus is the light of the world, then the math works out that he would be the light beyond the world, that he'd be the light of the whole universe and even what's beyond the universe. This is how Paul described it. Colossians chapter 1, verse 16. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. Just just catch that for a second. Everything that exists, all of us, every national or state park you visited, every lake you have been in a boat on, every ocean that you have stood in the waves at, Every place on this globe, every place in the universe, every person, every animal, all of it created through him and for him. Now, either that is some serious resume padding, or we should have chill bumps that we even get to talk about Jesus. That the whole universe is created through him and for him. This is who Jesus is. And all of history would tell your heart and your mind and your soul that's true. And the voice of your heart, the strongest voice of your heart, knows that this is not a fairy tale and that what this says about Jesus is real. And so if it's real, if he is the light of the world, that's a huge deal. So what does the light do? Look back at what Jesus said in John 8, 12. I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Think about the truth of of what is being said here. The light stabs the darkness, and the darkness bleeds dry. That's what the light of Jesus does. In other words, you take your most broken heart, you take your darkest moment, your most depressing moment, and the very nature of who Jesus is, he pierces that darkness, he pierces that pain, and he brings 
in the deepest and darkest moment of our life, Jesus brings light. And not just any light. It says that it's the light of life. So how do you know if you have the life of light? How do you know if you have this light from Jesus? I've borrowed this and I've, I've shared it with you before, but, but imagine somebody comes up to me and says, hey, how do you know that you're alive? Well, naturally, I'm going to pull out my birth certificate from my pocket because I always keep my birth certificate with me in my pocket just in case someone ever were to ask me if I were really alive. And I'd open up my birth certificate and I'd say right here on section A, you know, line one, this says this is when I was born. That's how I know that I'm alive. No. (laughs) I know that I'm alive because I'm breathing. (laughs) I know that I'm alive because I'm talking to you and I'm, I'm responding to you. In the same way, when we talk about following Jesus Christ, when we talk about having life, having the light of Jesus, we don't pull out a piece of paper. You see, some people, you you might say, well, well, how do you know if you have the light of Jesus Christ? They may say, well, I I watched this great documentary on A&E three times. Man, it it was fantastic. I, I really liked everything that I saw. Somebody else might say, well, my grandmama took me to church when I was little, and I, I was always there. Somebody else might say, well, I got a perfect attendance badge when I was a kid, you know, at church. Somebody else might say, well, I prayed a prayer when I was at camp, you know, when I was a a teenager. It was was amazing. It was exciting. Somebody else might say, well, I got baptized at at Lizard Lick Baptist Church. Man, I I know they got it on the records over there. That's where I got baptized. Somebody else might say, well, hey, I'm a member of Holland Avenue Baptist Church. Those are all good things. They're just not the answer to the question. How do you know that you have the light of life? How do you know that you're in Jesus? Well, Jesus says that it's all about following him. So the question of following Jesus is strategically connected to what it means to follow Jesus. So what does it mean to follow Jesus? There's a lot that has been said about what it means to follow Jesus. There's a lot that can be said. There's going to be a lot about what it means to follow Jesus until he returns. But If you would permit me and allow me, I'm just going to kind of streamline it down to to two things. Following Jesus requires radical obedience, and it requires regular influence. Radical obedience and regular influence. Think about the very first time that Jesus said the words, follow me, or at least one of the first times. He was talking to a couple of fishermen. David Platt writes, And the time when the sons of fishers were also fishers, these men would have grown up around the sea. Fishing was the source of their livelihood and all they'd ever known. It represented everything familiar and natural to them. That's what Jesus was calling them away from. By calling these men to leave their boats, Jesus was calling them to abandon their careers. When he called them to leave their nets, he was calling them to abandon their possessions. When he called them to leave their father in the boat by himself, he was calling them to abandon their family and friends. Ultimately, Jesus was calling them to abandon themselves. So does that mean that every time a person becomes a Christian, they're supposed to immediately quit their job, Leave their their keys in their car in the company parking lot. Don't go home and go live in a van down by the river somewhere in a foreign country. That's what it means to be a Christian, right? No. That's not always the call. It, 
it is sometimes the call. And some people respond to that call. But what Jesus is constantly trying to communicate, and I think what David Platt is trying to point us to, is that we need to quit acting like that Jesus intended for Christianity to be a couple of hours on Sunday morning. That Jesus did not intend to, to mean when he said, follow me, that you just need to make sure you're a member of a church, so if you ever run for office, you can put that on your website, and it helps you look good. Jesus did not intend for following after him just to mean that that you have a a church membership somewhere so that when you apply for membership in a local civic club that 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 would look good on your application. Now the very nature of how Jesus always talks has higher stakes. See, Jesus in, in looking at the disciples and Jesus in looking at me and you, he's always saying the same thing. The call is to follow after him, to abandon ourselves, to see our desire no longer as looking out for number one. But our desire changes. Our desire is to honor him and to love him, to treasure him first and most. That Jesus Christ becomes our ultimate treasure, our ultimate joy, our ultimate purpose. That relationship defines everything. That's what it means to follow after Jesus. It requires radical obedience. But it also requires some regular influence. Robert Creech writes, no one follows Jesus perfectly. That's good news. I'll start with me. It's good news for me. No one follows Jesus perfectly, but over time, the disciple begins to reflect his master's influence. So not perfectly, but let's just kind of take a moment to look in the mirror. Would your spouse and your kids, or maybe your grandkids, the folks you work with, the folks you go to school with, the waitress at your breakfast joint, would they look at your life and see that there's an influence of Jesus in your life? Would your golf buddies or your hunting buddies or your fishing buddies or your shopping pals, would the moms in your play group, would even the fellow folks here at the church, would, would they say that they see the influence of Jesus in your life? And would they say that they see that influence more today than they did two months ago or two years ago? You see, the, the way Jesus talks is always calling us to him, always calling us to, to be more in relationship with him. And when we're more in relationship with him, guess what happens? All those other relationships, they're dramatically changed for the good. Because all of a sudden we have the light of the world pouring into our life that we get to share with others. So are there any benefits for this radical obedience? Are there any benefits for this regular influence? Well, there's kind of a pretty big one. You see, if if you're a true follower of Jesus Christ, when you die, you don't really die. See, rather than than having to experience the, the emotional and somewhat physical horror of being separated from God forever, the really unexplainable pain that comes with eternal death, instead of getting that, you get eternal happiness and eternal joy and eternal satisfaction. That's kind of a pretty good perk for following Jesus. But just like some of the sign seekers in the crowd, there are people that say, well, heaven sounds nice, sounds like heaven is a good thing, but, but what about today? You know, what can Jesus do for me today? 
I think sometimes we're quick to say, oh yeah, I hear people say that all the time. But if we're honest with ourselves, even we as believers sometimes go, hey, what are you doing for me now, Jesus? Well, Jesus kind of has an answer for that. It's in exactly what he said that we've already read. Look back at verse 33. No one after lighting a lamp puts it away in a cellar, nor under a basket, but on the lampstand, so that those who enter may see the light. That's what Jesus is doing for you right now. He is still being the light. You see, this isn't just an invitation to sign seekers. This is a promise for radical, regular believers. I would say probably one of the most precious people who has ever sat in this room is Miss Johnny Niece. Five months ago, Miss Johnny's faith became sight. Perfect joy, perfect satisfaction, perfect happiness is maxing out every account in her soul forever. Her daughters brought up a, a box of books for the church library. And I just happened to be walking by and, and Tanya and Debbie said, hey, you know, you might want to look in here, see if you see something that you might like. And I just glanced in really quick and I immediately saw a little book. I didn't even look at the title. I just decided that's the one I wanted. And so I picked it up and I began to look at it. It's funny too because that little book sat on my desk from that day until this week. <laughs> see, I walked down the hall and I sat it on my desk and I just got busy and I never stopped to look at it until this week. But you know, it's funny. My busyness turned out to be God's version of well time. So I pick up this little book. The book is called Life's Extras by Archibald Rutledge. Rutledge was born and raised uh, near Charleston in McClellanville in the 1800s. And after a career away in other states, came back to McClellanville. And he died in 1973 in his hometown. I want to read just a small portion of an experience that Rutledge had going home one night. You know what? I'm going to read it out of the book. I promise I didn't pick this book because it was the smallest book. It just looked cool. I love the whole notion that there was this little book that had treasures for it in it, and I did not want to miss them. This is what he says. I once had a curious experience with a star I was driving home to the plantation in the old motorless days when I was overtaken at dusk by a storm of hurricane violence. Inky darkness shrouded the world. I could not even see the road ahead or behind. The thunder and the lightning were appalling. Finally, a bolt struck a pine not 20 feet from my buggy. My horse had stood a good deal from the storm, but now he made a sudden dash. He broke away through the forest and I could not hold him. In a moment, he had run between two pines standing close together. He had smashed both shafts and torn loose from the buggy and away from me. Into the howling darkness, he vanished. The rain came down as if it meant to make a joke of the flood. The thunder blared. The lightning became most uncomfortably intimate and intrusive. I heard near me great trees go crashing down in the fury of the tempest. Alone I was, defenseless in profound darkness. 
I knew in a way where I was, and to locate myself, the better I looked toward what I believed to be the West. And through the heavy arrays of the rain, to my amazement, I saw a little rift in the storm rack, hardly bigger than my hand, in the very heart of which the evening star gleamed in dewy silver solitude. Nobody writes like that, right? In all the stillness of felicity, it shone serenely, saying to my heart, this storm is an imposter. It is momentary. The sky is here, and the stars all shall be well. Amid all the desolation about me and the seemingly hopeless chaos, here came a celestial message shining through the storm rack. Its light reminded me of something past our world. Taking heart, I waded out to the road. I found my horse waiting for me half a mile down in its gleaming length. I rode homeward through the breaking storm, and I reached the house in full, calm starlight. And then he says this, Stars fill me with a sense of God. And the heart cannot help being grateful when it remembers that the beauty and the wonder of them may be accounted things not to enable us to exist, but gifts of love to make us joyous. I love that. In the middle of his darkest, most defenseless moment that he had experienced, there was light. That is who Jesus is. He brings light into your most defenseless moment. He brings light into your darkest moment. John Piper writes, Jesus will be the light in which you see mountains and valleys and oceans and rivers and trees and animals and people. Nothing will be the same again when you have Jesus as your light. Everything looks different in the light of Christ. And then he says this, even earthquakes and tsunamis and suffering and death, until his light fills the earth as the waters cover the sea, until it comes and banishes sin and sickness and pain and earthquakes to the outer darkness, until then, even now, his light will help you bear the sorrows of darkness. It will be a soft glow to comfort you in your lonely room after the devastating loss. And then he says this, it will be a lamp on your troubled path. It will reveal the wise and loving face of God behind every frowning providence. Jesus is the light of the world. His light can be seen, and his light makes everything different. Let me take us back to Oxford just for a second. When C.S. Lewis was there, he was struggling with what it meant to follow Jesus. Lewis said this, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. Knowing Jesus, finding Jesus is the light that brings light to everything else. The map begins to come together. Why? Because he's the light of the world. Everything is different in the light of Jesus. We're able to see everything differently in the light of Jesus. So here's the thing. Following after Jesus 
is not a leap in the dark. Following after Jesus is the farthest thing from a leap in the dark. It is a leap into the light. And not just any light, but the light of life. And not just life for today, but life that lasts forever. There is no other light like that. May we listen to Jesus in this dark world and see that his light is still as strong as ever. And his light is there for you.